you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to Hebrews, we're continuing our series through the book of Hebrews. The ability to choose is one of the greatest gifts that we have been given. One of the things that separate human beings from the rest of creation is that we are created in the image of God, which in part means that we have been given free will. We have the ability to choose. Our lives are filled with choices to make. Now, sometimes that can be a great gift and a great privilege, but other times that actually can be overwhelming. One of the things that I've learned as a parent is that uh, if we finish dinner and it's time to offer dessert to my boys, if we give them way too many options, if we say choose something out of 10 options, they won't be able to make any decisions at all. However, we say here are two or three choices, they're usually able to make a decision. When we were a couple months ago getting ready uh, for Christmas, we received a lot of different catalogs in the mail. We got the Amazon catalog, the Target catalog, we got the uh, Puffer Bellies catalog, and, and whenever we'd get those, I would just hand them over to my boys, and I would tell them, you know, circle anything that you might want uh, for Christmas. And what do you think they did? They circled almost everything. That's human nature. We want everything, but we can't have everything. We have to make choices. And the more options we're given, that means there are more things that we are not going to get. We have free will. We have the ability to choose. And the Bible makes it clear time and time again that we are presented with two choices. That's it. You have two options before you. And a choice you make will be one of life and death. It has eternal ramifications. So what are those two options? Well, if you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24... Let's see what God has to say about this. I encourage you now to stand in honor of the Word of God. This is God's Word, and it is absolutely true. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we are thankful for this time together. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts and open our minds. That we would not simply understand the words that you have spoken to us, but that we would be transformed by them. Lord, I pray that you might use today as an opportunity for anyone who does not know Jesus to call upon him in faith. And Lord, for those who are walking with Jesus, Lord, I pray that today might be a day that you grow our faith and that you deepen our love for him. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So the writer of Hebrews, he presents us with, with two vivid pictures of two mountains. There's Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Now, these are places, physical places that are known by the people of God. 
However, the focus of this passage is really not on the physical mountains themselves. It's on what they represent. It's on what they point to. They each represent a covenant. Mount Sinai points to the Old Covenant, and Mount Zion points to the New Covenant. Now, a covenant, it's a binding agreement made between two parties. In this case, a covenant is an agreement made between God and His people. It's between God and man. Uh, and, a, and a covenant relationship involves expectations for both parties. And if those expectations are met, then there will be blessings, and if they are not met, then there will be curses. At the heart of a covenant, though, is a relationship. God is our God, and we are His people. If we are able to abide by the covenant, if we are able to abide by the standards of the covenant, then we will be in relationship with God. If we do not abide by the covenant, then God will reject us. Those are the two options. You either keep the covenant or you do not. And this way, the old and new covenant are the same. Both covenants show us how we are to have a relationship with God. They show us how we can, can know God personally and intimately. Now, where they differ is how that's accomplished. And that is what this passage is going to help us see more clearly today. So really, the question before us is this. Do you truly want to know God? Not just know about Him, but do you want to have an intimate, personal relationship with God? Do you want to know Him? Is that even a possibility? Can we actually know, can we actually have a relationship with the one who created all things, with the one who holds all things in the palm of his hands? Can we know the one who is supremely beautiful and powerful and good? Yes, we can. God condescends to us and makes a covenant with us. God wants us to know him. God wants to be in relationship with him. But God is holy. He is majestic and He is glorious. Therefore, He has necessary standards that must be met in order for us to have a relationship with Him. And His covenant reveals what those are. His covenant reveals what is expected of us. You see, He revealed His covenant way at the beginning. We can read about this in Genesis 3. And then throughout the Old Testament, He gives us more and more manifestations of the covenant. We learn more and more about what God expects of us. The most significant of these manifestations is found in the giving of the law through Moses. And where, where does that happen? It happens at Mount Sinai. So the writer of Hebrews chose Mount Sinai to represent the Old Covenant because that is where God gave his Ten Commandments to Moses. And the Ten Commandments, they summarize the, the moral code and the moral law. This is what God expects of his people. This is how we are to live if we want to be in relationship with God. The Ten Commandments not only teach us what is expected of us, but they also teach us a lot about who God is. And that's what this passage does. It teaches us a lot about who God is. So when you, when you read this passage, when you see this description of Mount Sinai, what do you see? A blazing fire, darkness and gloom, a tempest, a voice that brought fear and trembling. This is what Israel experienced. This is what they saw when they were camped out at the foot of the mountain waiting for Moses to return from meeting with God. You can read about this in Exodus 19, verses 16 through 18 says this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, 
and the whole mountain trembled greatly. It is impossible for us to fully imagine, to fully grasp what Israel saw that day, what they experienced that day at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was an awesome sight, and it caused great fear to come upon the people. Now, what does this image, what does this picture, what does this communicate? Thunder and lightning, smoke and fire, darkness and gloom, a trembling mountain, a loud trumpet blast. What do you think God is trying to tell his people? Stay away. Do not come close. I am holy and you are not. You cannot come into my presence without my invitation and without my provision. The people of God got to see and experience a small glimpse of the holiness of God and they trembled in fear. They were terrified. Everything was shouting at them, stay away. You are not allowed to enter. Why? It's because God was present on that mountain. And we see this often in Scripture. Whenever God is present, that place is consecrated and it is holy. When God met with Moses at the burning bush, he was told to take off his sandals because that was holy ground. Or when Isaiah had this vision of God in his throne room, he covered his eyes and he cursed himself because he was in the holy presence of God. The holy presence of God is terrifying. And it brings death to anyone not worthy to be in his presence. God made this clear to Moses, and we read about this in, in Exodus 19, 12, and 13, which says this, You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall reach him or shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. So Moses was told to instruct the people that they could not and none of their animals could even touch the edge of the mountain. And if they did so, they would have to be stoned. And the reason for that is because if, if an animal or a person touched the edge of the mountain, they would be so unclean and so holy that you were not allowed to touch that person. So they were instructed to kill them from a distance, to stone them. Now maybe you're here this morning thinking to yourself, well, I understand, yeah, God's holy, but that seems a little harsh. I mean, that's extreme, isn't it? What's the big deal if, if my sheep accidentally walks along the edge of the mountain? Why do I have to kill it? What harm has done, been done? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with passages like this one. We struggle with some of the harsh things that we read in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. There's a lot of, a lot of bloodshed in the Old Testament. God calls us people to do some pretty violent and hard things at times. And so what are we to make with passages like that? Why does it matter if someone or some animal touches the edge of Mount Sinai? Why does that matter? It's because God is holy. Israel had some understanding of the holiness of God. That's why they told Moses in Exodus 20, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They could not even handle the thought of hearing God's voice. And so they begged Moses to speak on his behalf. And then we see here in verse 21 that even Moses, even Moses trembled with fear. Moses was God's chosen messenger. Moses was invited to come into the presence of God more than once. And even he trembled 
and was terrified by the holiness of God. But what about you? When you think of God, what do you think of? How do you view God? Is God holy? If He's holy, how should we respond to that holiness? I think if you're anything like me, we underestimate the holiness of God. We underappreciate, we undervalue the holiness of God. We are tempted to downplay it. We're tempted at times just simply to ignore it. And yet, holiness is one of God's chief attributes. God is holy. And because he is holy, nothing unholy is allowed into his presence. Nothing. One pastor said this, God is not an idol, a dumb, mute nothing who allows us to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and however we want. God is the all-holy, living, and true God, and he wants us to realize that. He also wants us to realize our own sinfulness because true worship, true fellowship, true communion with God requires a putting away of our sin and guilt. You see, the more we understand the holiness of God, the more passages like this one will actually start to make sense. The more it makes sense of, of why God commands his people from time to time to do some harsh and violent things. And the more we in, embrace the holiness of God, the more that we will see that holiness is actually a good thing. Yes, it's terrifying, but it is good. You see, because God is holy, justice actually matters. Because God is holy, love is actually real. Think about it this way. Now imagine if God just sometimes let something slip by. He's on that mountain, and let's say your donkey's walking by and falls over onto the edge of the mountain, and God says, I'm, I'm going to let this one slide. It's not really a big deal. I'm going to let it go. What's wrong with that? If that happened, God would no longer be holy. Holiness requires perfection and purity. One slip, one slide, and holiness is no more. And if holiness is no more, then there's no more true justice, there's no more true love. And we could go on and on and on. The holiness of God is good. And because God is holy, we cannot enter his presence without becoming holy ourselves. And that brings us back to the Old Covenant. The purpose of the Old Covenant is to reveal to us that we are not holy. It's to reveal to us the possibility of us having a relationship with God in our own power and our own strength is impossible. We can't do it. We need help. And this leads us to the second purpose of the Old Covenant. It also reminds us of the promise of God. What we could not do, God would do for us. God promised to one day send someone who would keep the covenant perfectly, who would fulfill the covenant, and who would establish a new covenant. And that leads us to Mount Zion. You see, Mount Sinai communicates very clearly, stay away. You are not welcome. God is unapproachable. But Mount Zion communicates something very different. It communicates a picture of access and community and celebration. Look again at verse 18. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched. You have not come to Sinai. As believers in Christ, we are no longer part of Sinai. Instead, look at verse 22, we have come to Mount Zion. Mount Sinai focuses on the holiness of God. 
that he cannot be approached. But here in verse 22, we are told that we have come to Mount Zion, and there's an invitation to come. There's an invitation to come into the presence of God. So what happened? What changed? How is that possible? Is God, is God still holy? And if he's still holy, how can we possibly imagine that we can come into his presence? As a teenager, I, I grew up um, outside of, or at least pretty near, Quantico Marine Base here in Virginia. And I would regularly go into Quantico. Um, sometimes our family would go there to go to the exchange or the commissary. Sometimes I would take my friends there. We would go there to go to the bowling alley or to the movie theater that was on the base. And if you've never been there before, when you drive up, you come up to this big gate, and the gate is surrounded by a fence. It's a huge fence. It's got barbed wire, electricity, and there are Marines with big guns. And so the thought is you don't just drive right in, because um, if you do, bad things are going to happen. And yet, as a teenager, 16-year-old, I would just drive right through the gate. Why? It's because I had a sticker on my car that said I had access, that I was allowed to enter. Why did I have that sticker? It's because my dad was in the Navy. It was because of him that I had access to the base. It was because of who he was. That's the only reason I could get in. I also learned a little bit later on that there was a responsibility that my dad had for allowing me into the base. So let's just say at one point in time, I might have been driving maybe a little too fast, and I might have gotten pulled over and might have gotten a speeding ticket. And a little bit later on, I had to appear in military court. I've been to military court, can you imagine? I had to appear in court. And when I was sitting before the judge, he told me three things. The first thing he told me is he just wanted to let me know that, that my speeding ticket was not going to go on my record at all. It didn't affect my public record because the military base is considered private property. So I was going to get no knocks on my driving record. I thought, well, that's a great thing. This is good. The second thing I was told is there was no fine to pay. I didn't have to pay anything. Like, this is fantastic. I made a note to myself, if I'm going to speed, I'm only going to speed on military bases. <laughs> but then the judge looked at me and said, this is what is going to happen. Your father is going to receive two demerits on his military record for your crime. By the way, my dad served in the military for over 20 years. Those are the only two demerits he ever got. He got them because of my infraction. I was on the base because of his access his privilege and he had to pay the price for my infraction. He took the punishment for my law breaking. Isn't that what Jesus does for us? He took our sin on himself and then he paid the price for our sin. But not only does he do that, but Jesus lived a perfect life. He perfectly fulfilled the covenant and he also gives us that perfect record. Because of him, because of Jesus, you and I are covenant keepers. Because of him, we are holy. And because of Jesus, we are invited to Zion. You are invited into the presence of God, and you are under the new covenant. And that is what we see here in verses 22 through 24. Mount Zion it represents two things in this passage. First, there's the physical mountain. Mount Sinai was a real place. It was in the southeast portion of Jerusalem. And oftentimes in Scripture, Zion and Jerusalem are used interchangeably. Why is that important? Well, what happened in Jerusalem? 
That is where Jesus was tried and found guilty. He was crucified just outside of Jerusalem. And then later he rose from the dead outside of Jerusalem. So Zion encapsulates all of that. It reminds us of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So when we come to Zion, it means that we are coming to the crucifixion and we are coming to the resurrection. That we are trusting in the atoning death of Jesus and his victorious resurrection for our salvation. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. He didn't ignore it. He didn't nullify it. He didn't invalidate it. He fulfilled it by perfectly obeying, by perfectly keeping the law, by living a righteous life, and by dying an atoning death on the cross. And his resurrection is a testimony to the fact that his sacrifice was accepted, that he indeed kept the covenant perfectly. And that he has become the mediator of a new covenant. So the old covenant reminds us of God's holiness and of our unholiness. And it shows us that we cannot have a relationship with God in our own strength or based upon our own merit. It's nothing that we can earn ourselves. The new covenant shows us that God is still holy. God does not change. The same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He is one. He is holy but he satisfies his holiness through the death of his son. And therefore, we are able to have a relationship with God based on Christ's worth and his merit. It's based upon who Jesus is and what he's done. It's not based on what we've done. You see, the old covenant is one of of works. It's focused on what we do. The new covenant is one of grace. It's focused on what Jesus has done. And through him, we now have access to God. But Mount Zion also points to something even greater, and we see this in verse 22. Zion points us to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. This is the place of God, and because of Jesus, we have come to this place. You have access to God. You are in relationship with him. And Hebrews has made this clear several times. Hebrews 4 exhorts us to draw near to God with confidence, to find grace and mercy. Or later on in Hebrews 10, we read that since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and it goes on and says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Under the new covenant, we have access to God. We can come into his presence and we can do so with confidence because we have a relationship with him. He is our God and we are his precious children. It's only possible because of Jesus. And that is made clear in verse 24. Jesus, not us, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And it is a covenant that is written in his sprinkled blood. Now, we cannot fully understand the true privilege that we have because of him. But let's look at some of the blessings that we receive under the new covenant. The first one is one we already talked about, that we come to Mount Zion. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the place where God dwells. It's a place of unfathomable beauty and glory and majesty. And we are already invited to that place. We are already at, in our children and citizens of Mount Zion. Second, when we come to Zion, we come to a place with innumerable angels in the festal gathering. This is another one of the contrasts we see in this passage. You see, angels were actually present in the giving of the law. They were there as mediators of the law. But here, what do we see? The angels are gathered to party. And there are too many to count. This is a picture of a wonderful celebration that we are part of and that we are invited to be a part of. Zion is a place of feasting and worship. It is not a place of fear and dread. 
Third, when we come to Zion, we come to the church. The church is what's described here as the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The church consists of men and women, young and old, of every nation, tribe, and tongue that God has assembled to be his people. We are those, the church are those, the true church are those who are enrolled in heaven. Another way the Bible talks about that is it's, they are the, the, the true church consists of those people whose names are written in the book of life or whose names are written in heaven. It consists of everyone who belongs to Jesus, and Jesus came to save those whose names are written in the book of life. And since we are united to Christ in faith, who is the firstborn, we have now become recipients. We are recipients of the inheritance that God designated for his only begotten son. That's one of the privileges we have as believers. Fourth, the passage tells us that when we come to Zion, we come to a judge of all. So we do not come to an earthly judge. An earthly judge can make mistakes. We come to God who knows all things, who is absolutely good, and who judges all things perfectly. He would never fail in any of his judgments. His judgments will always be perfect, they will always be just, and they will always be good. And here's why that matters, is if you belong to Jesus, he has judged you as not guilty. And he doesn't make mistakes. You are not guilty in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How is that possible? You see, there's nothing hidden from his sight. God knows everything about us. He knows every thought that has ever gone through our minds. There are plenty of things that cause us to be guilty. And yet God calls us not guilty. We are justified because Jesus was judged in our place. So therefore, the judgment of God is not something for us to truly fear. Fifth, when we come to Zion, we come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is speaking of those men and women that have gone before us, that have already passed into glory, and have already experienced the reality of God's sanctifying spirit. Now, there are two things I want to point out here. First, it's a reminder that Zion is a place that has no imperfections. In other words, there is no sin at Zion. It's a place of holiness and glory. And if we belong to Jesus, we are already in this place in, in some way we can't fully understand. You know, we may not fully understand and experience Zion while we are living this side of heaven, but we are already members of Zion. We are already citizens of heaven by faith in Christ. And when we look around the world, when we look in our lives, what we notice there's lots of things that we don't like. There's lots of things that are wrong. And, and sin is really at the root of all of that. Sin is at the root of all that is wrong. But in Zion, sin will be no more. It'll be a place of perfect goodness and holiness and purity. And as Christians, you are already part of Zion. The second thing I want us to see here is that this has great implications for us whenever we gather to worship. I was reading an article in Table Talk magazine from Ligonier recently, and this is what it says. It says, we gather with the angels and the saints who have gone before us. Positionally, we are in heaven alongside all the faithful men and women who have served God throughout history. Though corporate worship may be scheduled in earthly buildings, we actually enter heaven every time we gather with other believers to praise our God. Think about that for a moment. That is what we do when we gather here on Sunday mornings. That is what we do when we come to worship. We gather for worship. We enter the heavenly sanctuary with every believer on earth and every believer that, has already, that already belongs to heaven. 
So when we come together, we're not just worshiping with a couple hundred people here on Sunday morning. We worship with the innumerable multitude that belong to Jesus. And this is one of the many reasons why Sunday worship is so important. It's an opportunity for us to gather with believers throughout history to worship our God. Once again, we don't fully understand that, but that is the truth of what we're being told here. But finally, and this is where this passage is headed, and this is the heart of the passage. When we come to Zion, we come to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant through his sprinkled blood. So this passage really is an exhortation to come to him. Come to Jesus. Don't run to Mount Sinai, which means don't try to earn your way to God. Don't try to stand before God on your own merits. Because the old covenant only leads to death. There are two choices. You can choose to follow Jesus, or you can choose death. Come to Zion. Come to Jesus. His atoning blood is your only hope. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We see that at the end of the passage. And you can read about Abel in Genesis 4. What is being pointed out here is that Abel, he made a sacrifice. He and his brother Cain both made sacrifices. Abel's sacrifice included the spilling of blood. And God was pleased with the sacrifice. But his sacrifice in and of itself did not save him. All the Old Testament animal sacrifices did not bring salvation. What they did, though, is they pointed to one that would. They pointed to the only sufficient sacrifice, and that is the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. His sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus alone, is sufficient. So the blood of Jesus is greater than the blood of Abel. Because Jesus' sacrifice brings life, Abel's sacrifice really only brought death. And we see that in the sense that Cain killed his brother. Abel died. And his blood cries out for justice. It cries out for Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest. He's the mediator of a new covenant. He leads all who have faith in him to a greater mountain. Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai reminds us of how unholy we are. But Mount Zion reminds us of how loved we are. Mount Sinai teaches us that God is unapproachable. Mount Zion calls us to approach God through Christ. It's an invitation. Mount Sinai reminds us of the holiness of God. Mount Zion reminds us of the cross of Christ. Mount Sinai says, stay away. Mount Zion says, come, come to me. Jesus has paid for your sins. He has made you a covenant keeper. You are righteous and holy because of him. He has made Zion your eternal home. Jesus is calling you to follow him. And if you follow him, he will lead you home. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we are thankful that we are no longer part of Mount Sinai, that we are no longer living under the law. For all of us fall short. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can keep your law perfectly. Thanks be to God that you sent Jesus who could. Jesus kept your law perfectly. He fulfilled the covenant. And all who have faith in him have become covenant keepers. We've been made righteous and holy, and we are now part of Mount Zion, and we are called to come into your presence. We are called to come into your presence where we will not find judgment. 
where we will not find fear and trembling, but where we will find mercy and grace, and where we will find celebration and worship. If there is anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus, I pray that today would be that day that they come to call upon him in faith. And for those of us who are following Jesus, I pray, Father, that you would forgive us for the times that we turn back to Sinai. Forgive us for the times where we think we can actually earn favor with you based upon our own merit. I pray that you would remind us that we are already citizens of Zion, that we are already righteous and holy, and I pray that you, through your Spirit, would help us live as who we truly are, and that Jesus would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.